the airwaves Here is my request You don't have to play it But I hope you'll do your best I've been listening to your show on the radio And you seem like a friend to me Howdy hi, Victoria Stand the man Hello Oh, don't get up, it's only me. Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420 3XY, how are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six, 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3 E, the breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1420 3XY. Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It's our 30 minutes or so where we catch up with the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And today's pilot was always destined to enter the world of broadcasting because, as they say, the apple never falls far from the tree. Her father, Lenny, entertained Melbourne on stage, television and, of course, radio. And for his daughter, Jane, that was the path that she, too, wanted to take. Jane Holmes, welcome to Pilots, and thanks for joining us. Oh, it's so good to be here, Paul. Thank you for having me. Now, we mentioned your father, Lenny, in the introduction. What was his initial reaction when you first suggested that radio might be the career for you? (laughs) He was actually very pleased. My mother, who'd also worked in radio because she was in um, publicity, and continuity and copywriting was absolutely horrified. So I had one on either side of the fence uh, and I let them have an argument about it and just kept on keeping on. And it's their fault, really. I mean, because they gave me the genes and they also gave me the love of the medium in just everything they listened to and shared with me when I was growing up. So it is their fault, blaming them. Uh, and, And they were both extremely happy after a small discussion of an animated nature, to have me following in the family footsteps. Now, Jane, I'd assume early on in your career, you would have been introduced to everybody as Lenny's daughter, Jane. When did that eventually die off? 
Look, I, it, it depended, uh, you know, if I was with my dad's contemporaries, then I was still Lenny's daughter. And I went on, you know, after, after dad left us, I, I still was Lenny's daughter. I think well, there was room for both of us. And I was so proud. Uh, one of my dear friends gave me a photograph only recently of my father and me at a 3DB reunion. Uh, must have been about 20 years ago, about five years before I lost my dad. And uh, I had worked at 3DB as a producer of Bill Tucky's Breakfast Show in the mid-80s. My father had worked there as a uh, co-host of Evenings with Ron Cady about 1981 or so. So at that stage, I was producing Alex Kenworthy at 3AW in opposition to my father hosting the night program on 3DB. And I was so proud to see the photograph that was sent to me of me and the old man beaming like Luna Park uh, at the camera, proud that we had that station that united us both. It was just a joy. I was definitely Lenny's daughter at an occasion like that. Okay, let's rewind briefly to Jane Holmes, the student at Lowther Hall in the suburb of Essendon. Now, I'm getting the feeling that you would have been a studious type, Jane, and probably into the school dramas and plays. I was too shy and studious to be in the drama group, actually. Uh, So, you know, I was in my nose buried in books and so forth. I did enjoy uh, the choir and the school madrigal group. And I also uh, tortured people with my violin playing in the school orchestra. And that was as close to performing. See, with a violin, you can hide behind it. And uh, I was not enormously gifted, so I could uh, scare people away by playing the violin at them. Although, uh, interesting aside, my violin teacher, who was the most lovely, lovely man, was John Reese. And he went on to become the bass player for Men at Work. And we were just blown away that our old music teacher from the other hall had gone on to do that. And he was such a a sweet and lovely guy and uh, found such amazing success uh, as they, you know, found success in the United States as well as Australia that, yeah, it was pretty cool playing violin. But I wasn't one of those outwardly got to be in your face performing, telling jokes types at school. That was later. (laughs) Now, while doing all that study, who was that must-listen-to jock on the radio back in those teenage years? Well, I don't know about night, but at any time of the day, you know, my, my, bizarrely, my favourite jock was Barry Bissell on 3XY um, because I just loved his voice. I loved the way he listened to music and he had a kind of a, a little naughty sense of humour on the go there. And I was just blown away when, um, you know, some years later, when uh, it was about 1985, I think, I actually worked with him for 12 months at Fox. Uh, I nearly fainted when they are, because I just remember thinking he was the ant's pants as far as music jocks went. Um, And I was very much a 3XY listener. But I remember uh, also hearing uh, Jan Cannon uh, doing breakfast uh, on, uh, and thinking that's Triple M. Ben, uh, thinking that's pretty cool too. So, uh, but yeah, oh, Lee Simon and Greg Evans. Um, the 3XY lineup, if he sneezed at 3XY, I thought you were the ants' pants. Now, like so many other successful radio personalities, you trained with Clark Sinclair. How many other girls were there in Clark's radio school, or was it just you? It was just me. Goodness me. Uh, the interesting thing is that. I went to an all-girls school, as you said, Lather Hall in Essendon. There were certainly no boys except for poor Mr. Reeves, the violin teacher. 
<laughs> you must have felt terribly outnumbered. Um, and then it was the exact opposite in the outside world and at Clark's place, but didn't really feel either here nor there about it. I mean, we were just, I think the one thing in all a single sex school or the um, school that I went to certainly instilled in us was doesn't matter if you're black, brown or brindle, male, female, somewhere in between, you stand on your merits and you stand up for yourself. And so it didn't bother me. And it's only maybe recently when you look back and go, oh, I was the only girl there, wasn't I? By large way. So uh, it was it was quite not a bit. It didn't strike me as unusual at the time. So your path was different to so many others in that there was no country apprenticeship. It was straight into a, well, a bit of everything down there in Latrobe Street. <laughs> Um, yeah, I did. I uh, was lucky enough, uh, with Clark's help, to uh, get a research position at 3AW. Uh, and I, I was relatively timid, although I knew I wanted to work in radio. So it was a good way. It was a virtual apprenticeship. I know these days it's encouraged for you, or in fact, almost mandatory for you to have a communications degree of some description before you work in radio. In those days, not. And so I spent uh, several years learning from the ground up, learning how to research for a program, learning how to write for a program, uh, learning how to answer the phones. I answered the phones. Uh, just understanding how all of the various elements of broadcasting worked in together to produce the whole and how the whole connected with the audience. I was absolutely blessed that in spending uh, what amounted to six years there, by the end of it, I had a perfect grounding in what would be the equivalent of, uh, I say, a university degree. Others may say no, but it was hands-on, this is how it works type practice. And that was something money couldn't buy. Yes, we've got personality news, personality comments, personality sports, personality talk, personality music, personality words with meaning just for you. Now, I think back then the format of 3AW would have been probably a million miles away from what a young girl thought radio would be all about. However, was there any one particular lesson that you took away from those early years at AW? Oh, absolutely. It was the power of radio, the way that radio is an incredible one-on-one medium. While I was at 3AW in 1983, Ash Wednesday happened, and this was a tragedy on a scale that I had never experienced in my 22 years at that stage of life. And I saw the devastation wreaked by nature, but I also saw how radio can help in connecting the people that are affected by that. I saw uh, our reporters, our journalists, our producers out there risking their own lives to bring the information to our listeners about what was happening in the various areas. If you have family here, this is what's happening. If you're listening here, these are the evacuation points. It was extraordinary as it happened radio that was also making news as well as reporting the news. As time went on and it looked 
that uh, we were starting to rebuild in the days after an appeal was launched and I was on reception as part of my duties as relief receptionist and I saw tradies come in and I saw little old ladies come in emptying their purse, emptying their pockets saying, I want to help, this is all I have, take this. And we forwarded that, it was uh, money in hand, it wasn't a pledge. A million dollars came in to help the people from our state that our listeners cared about and our people were working in with the essential services. It wasn't about our egos. It was about how best we could help to help Victoria help itself. It was the most humbling experience. And so in my fourth year of radio, I learned the most humbling lesson about radio, which is it's not about you. It's about us. It's about who you're talking to and it's about how you can help. That was an experience that money can't buy, and I've never forgotten it. As you mentioned, there was time there at 3DB with the motorman Bill Tucky, but then the big break came with the XY Zoo. Tell us how that opportunity came about. I had uh, finished my time at 3AW. For a moment, I went up to uh, Sydney to be a researcher on, a, on an afternoon television show called Afternoon with Katrina Lee and Tony Murphy. It was put up in competition to the midday show with Ray Martin. It didn't last all that long. I had a fabulous time, but I needed to find a job when I came home. That's when 3DB kindly took me under its wing with Dear Bill. That's when um, Colin Denovan at 3XY and Gary Suprain, uh, Colin was the news editor, Gary Suprain at 3XY was the program director. And between the two of them, they were putting together uh, an additional component to the XY Zoo, which already existed with Richard Stubbs and Peter O'Callaghan and had existed prior to uh, Peter O'Callaghan's arrival with Peter Harrison and Richard. And then it was evolving and they wanted to marry news into the programming. I had, uh, as part of my virtual apprenticeship at AW, been a news reader, not a news writer. Colin said, oh, for goodness sake, well, I'll take you under my wing. I'll teach you all about this. This is how you do it if you want the job. Um, and I did want the job. It sounded like a wonderful opportunity. So between Colin and dear Gary, uh, I was blessed to learn from two of the best in the business. And then with Richard, oh my goodness, and Peter, again, two of the best in the business. Um, so they all decided to slap me into shape. And that in uh, 1985, I think, was how it all came to be. And we were so pleased to be able to do it and to have fun and to connect with our listeners that way. Now, given the big personalities that you are working with, what were some of the special qualities or skill set, if you like, that each of the guys brought to the microphone? Oh, that's a great question. Um, uh, Peter O'Callaghan, of course, loved music, loved entertainment, had a naughty sense of humour and understood all of the elements that make radio work, all of the technical elements, all of the entertainment elements. He could bing, bang, bong, put it together and... Uh, like be the ringmaster. Richard Stubbs is still one of the funniest men I have ever met with one of the most original ways of looking at life. He understood how to take something and make it really special and make it really def uh, different and connect with his audience and make them laugh, which can be hard to do when everyone's grumpy at six o'clock in the morning, us and the listeners. 
he made that work too. Um, we had Ian Nichols, uh, wonderful Nico, uh, who was working with me in the newsroom. And uh, he and Colin helped me uh, to learn about news and how to do it, uh, for which I'm eternally grateful. Grubby Stubbs, uh, Richard's brother, came in to do sport. And uh, what a silly man, eh? Uh, he just got radio right from the work. What was he doing? I always say, you used to work in women's clothing, didn't you? Because he did. He worked as, uh, you know, he was, I think, a salesperson for a women's clothing, clothing firm. Uh, he was always destined to entertain people as well. And uh, so he did sport. I did news. We shared the same booth. Uh, sometimes I don't know what he ate for dinner the night before, but that was always a concern uh, as we shared the same air in the next day. So what did I learn from him? Uh, don't eat whatever you're eating the night before. Enjoy yourself. They all taught me to enjoy myself. And I might say after darling Peter O'Callaghan left us to move on to um, E.ON, uh, Laurie Atlas came to join us and Laurie had the same innate ability to marry all the elements together, press all the right buttons, understand how much was too much, how much is just enough and bring it all together. So we all had skills that we could bring and um, wonderful comedy performers like Rick McKenna, who played a character called Tasman J. Clinch, who was a uh, weird sort of astrological reader wearing a turban, carrying a stuffed dead cat called Dennis. He was one of the most out there and amazing comedy minds who finished up firstly running uh, The Last Laugh, I think it was, in... Um, Smith Street, Collingwood, and then, of course, becoming an amazing comedy force and television executive uh, as his wife, Gina Riley, who occasionally participated. Um, they were have been one of the most enduring forces in Australian comedy. So amazing, totally grateful. Always look back on it with extraordinary gratitude and fondness. In a rather male-dominated environment, did you ever get the feeling that you were the token female or was the dynamic of the group way beyond that? Oh, thank you. No, I didn't feel token female, not ever. No, not at all. I didn't actually think of myself as the token female because I wasn't classically pretty as such. So I knew I wasn't there for my looks. <laughs> and um, that was good. That was good. No, I was there as an equal. And uh, we all benefited from working with each other. And I was enormously grateful that uh, our program director and uh, Gary Suprain and our team and our colleagues at large didn't treat me as a token. They treated me as someone who brought something valid to the table. I hope I did. I hope I weren't just being kind. Think, you know, but I think we were all there for a reason. It was great. Now, FM radio was emerging and going from strength to strength. Was there a feeling that the zoo had to offer something different at breakfast? I think there was a feeling that the zoo had to stand its ground and believe in what it offered our listeners, that it had to understand who our listeners were and to continue to connect with them. There may have been a flashy new kid on the block, but just remember the heritage of the place that we were representing, represent ourselves to be uh, in, intelligent and entertaining entities in our own right and just stand our ground. And we did actually pretty well, I think. Certainly times change, broadcasting changes, but I don't think we ever stopped being a good program, a great program to listen to. And I don't think we ever stopped 
connecting with the people who believed in us either. Now, you mentioned before that you moved from the zoo to join Barry Bissell at the Fox. I would think that Barry's approach to broadcasting would have been poles apart from the old zoo. How did you adapt and uh, how was the chemistry between the two of you? Oh, wonderful. Barry was a funny bugger too, you know. He didn't, there wasn't a difference in broadcasting all that much because he just got broadcasting as well. He, uh, He understood that you as a broadcaster are talking to you, the listener, and it's one-on-one and you're sharing your sense of excitement as being a broadcaster. You're sensing, uh, you're sharing a sense of excitement at presenting a product that you believe in. That was us at the zoo. We believed in, oh, we had great music there, but we did at Fox too. Barry taught me a lot about listening to the music uh, as an overall piece and then understanding the components of the music, which really connected with me from my tortured days back at the Lowther Hall Orchestra in that a whole lot of elements make one piece of music. Listen to the harmonies, listen to how all of the strands marry in together, listen to the words, someone wrote them for a reason, try and understand them, won't you? There's a girl. And also Barry taught me um, there was you can have a a pretty good chance of having a hit if you've got a walking tempo. And one of the cases in point was like Matthew Wilder, Break My Stride. You can go out walking to that. Uh, We went through a stage where we were all power walking. Something like that puts a bit of a pep in your step. It's it's not going to be the world's greatest track of music, but whoever wrote it thought, look, I can make money out of this. What will I do? Walking tempo, uh, catchy uh, melody, uh, cute guy said, no worries, put them all together. What have you got? A hit, thanks, I'll take the money. Uh, it was good. Barry taught me a lot about analysing a track of music. This is Pilots of the Airways, of course, and we're talking to Jane Holmes. Now, Jane, there was Double TFM where you were talking to the people, a couple of years of travelling the globe talking to the animals, back through Gold FM, and then a fairly long stint at 3MP, which in a sense turned out to be hard yards. Twas, but again, uh, I was used to that. It was like when uh, 3XY was under siege from the FM invasion. You believe in what you're doing. You believe in your listeners. You honour your clients. Uh, You wouldn't be there without. And you just get on with it and you don't allow your attention to be deflected by uh, naysayers. You uh, believe in what you're doing. Again, it was wonderful to work with Peter O'Callaghan after the Fox all those years prior. And Pete was always a a total believer in the beauty of broadcasting as a medium. So, again, we just wanted to reach out, connect with our listeners, have a good time, share that with them. Let's all just take a deep breath, listen to the music and uh, get on with it. And that's what we did. Um, Yes, 3MP had come back from its amazing start in broadcasting when it was number one Uh, but again we understood that heritage and we didn't let our standards drop Uh, we just kept on with that and indeed while I was there at uh, 3MP uh, celebrated uh, a broadcasting anniversary that meant that I was going through old tapes reliving the amazing shows that uh, started when they began their glorious rise to number one. I listened to their jingles. We put sunshine on your ceiling. It used to be about that summer feeling. It was about feeling. It was reminding me all along, radio's about feeling. That's what 3MP did all that, all the time. We continued to try to be about feeling 
and about honouring the people on it and who we were broadcasting to. So what was it like doing the full circle and eventually returning to 3AW and Magic? Oh, it was wonderful coming back to 3AW because I, you know, having started there as a junior, always listened to it and that indelible experience that I had with Ash Wednesday always imprinted 3AW as a place in my heart that um, would never be replaced by any place else because I always knew the power of talk radio and information radio in its purest sense. That's what AW has always done. I was really honoured when dear Rosemary Morgan retired to be able to take her role on Neil Mitchell's program. And uh, again, I was honoured to get to know Rosemary too in the years after that. She'd always been an idol of mine when I was growing up and wanting to work in the show business about how she retained her uh, wonderful feminine dignity uh, and still retained a wonderful uh, glimmer of fun and ability to communicate with an audience. And uh, so it was lovely to get to know the lady that I used to watch on the Channel 9 weather. And it was an amazing honour to work with Neil Mitchell. And that was 14 years ago. And it remains an incredible honour to be a part of that program that uh, has brought so much to so many people. People, not the least of uh, which occurred this year with its power to communicate what we need to know during, as they always call it, these unprecedented times. But it has been, and it's been a, um, it's been an honour to be a part of the product. In terms of breakfast on magic, your on-air partner, of course, was Kevin John. Listen, he just oozed gentleness and genuineness. What was he like to work with? He is one of the most beautiful souls that you would ever have met. He used to every day, every day. And I said this to Neil too. um, He would take a moment. He would look out the window. I can see him doing it at double T. I mean, I can also see him doing it at magic too, looking out over the roof of Southern Cross station to the Northern suburbs beyond that. And he'd say, what a privilege, what a beautiful city. And he would say those words and he meant it. He meant it from his soul. He never underestimated the privilege that it is to be a broadcaster. When he sat behind the microphone, he had the highest standards. Um, He had studied it since he had been on this planet he loved it. He understood the connection that broadcasters and audiences have because he had that broad that connection when he was growing up. He was a beautiful soul and I lament his passing every day because he was here to teach us about fun. He was here to teach us standards and he was here to teach us about friendship. He did all of that. And I think everybody who knew him or listened to him continue to miss him. Also, given that you were on the breakfast shift, you would have obviously run into the great Keith McGowan on Crossover. Now, listen, I could only imagine his state of mind and also probably appearance after five and a half hours on air. Keithy was a very dear friend and had been for many years. He was very supportive of people who he thought understood his way of looking at broadcasting. He uh, was a broadcasting purist because Keith, sounded like he broke all the rules, but he didn't. He, in fact, took all of the rules as far as they could go in that you'd hear him 
rummaging around in the off mic, he'd be <laughs> coughing and slowly cursing under his breath and doing things like that. He was doing things that everybody does. He could have been, your, you know, the awful grandpa in the shed or something looking for a spanner uh, when he was looking for the right cut to play or something. Um, he loved radio he loved humor he loved people who loved those things we got along like house on fire and he loved my dad he uh he respected my father who had worked in radio uh and their paths had crossed at 3db so um he he was delightfully paternal in his dealings with me he could still be irascible and funny but his take on life was wonderful in the 3AW uh, studio block, there's a photograph of Keefe uh, and, and his dates, his birth to his death. And I can't believe that, I, you know, that he is gone from us. But every time I have walked past that photograph, I've said, hello, Keefe. Or if something, if I'm trying to work out something, to, uh, something I need to solve in the back of my head, I'll walk past him and go, well, what, what would you do, Keefe? And uh, it usually sorts itself out. So um, shall I thank him every day too, in a bizarre way. And finally, Jane, you were given the task at one stage of turning an AFL larrikin into a polished breakfast co-host. How was the experience with Sam Kekovich and did the combination work? Oh, look, it, uh, yes, and, and well, it certainly did. He's amazing. I know I only say nice things about people, but I'm not Snow White or Pollyanna. I've been really lucky to work with an amazing group of people who I may not have had any connection with. Uh, and Sam's certainly one of them. He's, oh, he's clever. He's funny. He's himself. He doesn't change for anyone. And that's great. That certainly is great. I wasn't there to turn him into a polished radio performer. I was there to uh, just maintain some semblance of framework because you do need to pause for an ad occasionally, assuming that there is one, uh, and you do need to marry the other components of the program together. So I I was there to bring it together, and it was about Sam uh, being Sam because we'd known him, of course, even if you – how could you be unaware of his football career? If you were, you would have known him from his lamb ads. If you didn't know him from that, you would have known him from somewhere. Everybody knew Sam for some reason. Uh, And he's a clever, funny, larger-than-life, gentle man. And it was a a pleasure to work with him too. Oh, and and he used to come in wearing shorts and he had the most awful... um, it was like a shark bite on his knee. It made me understand, oh, gee, I'm, I'm glad I didn't take up sport because his knee reconstructions, one of which had got infected, I think, he's a, he stood up to it. He stood a lot of stuff during his life. If you can let someone take a chunk out of your knee, you can work with me for uh, a few months in breakfast. He did well. Okay, time for a dozen or so quick-fire jock questions that we ask most of our guests. First one being, where were you when you heard John Lennon died? Well, I was, uh, I believe, at 3AW because my memory of it is 
that it was a weekday afternoon and I had been on switchboard relief because it was in my relatively early days before I started uh, working on programs. And I remember taking calls. I remember taking calls from people crying. Um, and again, it's that weird, I get the connection. I get that radio is more than a radio. It's a member of people's family. It's a friend and it's someone you turn to particularly talk radio, but really uh, any sort of radio, if it's being used the right way, is another person. It's not just some button that you push. And so people didn't know where to turn and they were ringing us. I didn't really know what to say to them. I didn't really understand it. It was, um, and I wasn't really a huge John Lennon fan, but I realised that um, one of my contemporaries had died under the most, well, contemporaries, one of the people who had always been around had died under the most awful circumstances. So it was, uh, you know, just such a wake up on so many levels. I just remember people ringing crying. And the next day I remember Darren Hinch talking about it on air on his program and, uh, and the full enormity of it just came hurtling home. The last concert ticket you paid for? Sad story. It was the Moody Blues to be playing the Palais Theatre a few years ago. And I got sick and I couldn't go. And I paid for them. I mean, I paid for them. I know, Lady Muck. I, I do pay for things. Um, anyway, I had, and that was the end of that. And I so wanted to see them. And uh, particularly, I had not been a major Moody Blues fan growing up, but my darling partner, Peter Ackfield, and some of our friends were. And Peter had introduced me to the Moody Blues, and I suddenly realised, where have I been all my life? These guys are great. Listen, they're coming to Melbourne. Yay. Let's buy a ticket and let's not use it because I'm not going to be well. <laughs> so it was very sad, sad but true. The concert act that you regret never seeing. I guess it would be the Beatles, actually. It would be that famous 25 minutes at Festival Hall, only because, I mean, I was four years old. I do remember seeing the Beatles come down from Essendon Airport. We were looking, actually, I don't know if I actually saw them, but I remember mum and dad taking me to the corner of the street to see if we could see the Beatles. That was as close as I got. Wish I'd seen them. I saw a, a number of acts that I'm glad I saw, and I hope to see more acts before I check out, but uh, yeah, it'd have to be the Beatles. The word that you had most trouble pronouncing on air. I am okay with most words because I, I, I either don't say them, I find another word for them because I, <laughs> I don't like to put myself in that position. I'm not like David Armstrong, um, who as they say on Breakfast on AW these days, was the only person in Australia, if not the world, who correctly pronounced the Icelandic volcano's name. I wouldn't say that. I would not go near it with a stick. Uh, I haven't had to say it on air, but that is just a shocking thing. And hats off to Arno because he actually did it with a flourish. But that's the other thing I learned. Even if it's not right, say it with a flourish and they'll think, oh, is that how you say it? So a bit of sort of skullduggery involved in all of that. Now, Jane, I'm almost embarrassed to ask you this question, but was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those don't-come-Monday orders? No. <laughs> no, there's not, actually, because I was a relatively well-behaved young child, which means uh, I could have been more successful if I'd been terribly naughty. I don't think so. I do remember getting my call signs uh, 
misconstrued after Fox when I went to work for 101.1 double TFM and I called it 101.9. I thought, oh, that's it. They're just going to drag me out and, you know, slap me. But they didn't. Um, No, I've never done anything awful. Aren't I boring? Hey, never boring, Jane. Musical preferences, Skyhooks or Sherbet? Initially Skyhooks, uh, by a country mile, it was Skyhooks because they were my favourites growing up. Um, I don't know if you can see that. I'm just holding it up to the microphone. Living in the 70s was the first album that I bought and it still has the sticker on it, H Ford, that's Herbert Ford, 134 Puckle Street, Mooney Ponds, and it was $5.95. I loved Skyhook, so it's so naughty. I was blown away when I got to work with Shul when I went to work at 3XY and I was even doubly blown away that he was the nicest, funniest, sweetest, dearest boy in the world, just like a naughty big brother. And I was devastated when he died. And I was amazed and uh, uh, blessed to work with Red Simons too uh, recently when he came into AW. They were great. I loved them. But then I've met Daryl in the ensuing years and I thought he was the most wonderful, talented beautiful soul too so i'm divided now i have to be divided and yeah so initially skyhooks but i veered the rolling stones or the beatles definitely the beatles no question about it i've never liked the rolling stones is that an awful thing to say the beatles if you take their music away from the 20th century and even the 21st century a lot of their structure a lot of their chord progressions, a lot of their melodies, their way of looking at things formed the basis for so much of what became hits in their own right for other people, Uh, the basis of new ways of thinking of things. I love the Beatles' music. I loved its production work from George Martin. Um, I remember George Martin's quote that I loved was... uh, when he was talking about the difference between the two producers, George Martin and uh, Phil Spector. Yes, well, produced by George Martin, overproduced by Phil Spector. Um, Just the cleverness, the way you could marry an orchestral instrument or arrangement into rock music, hands down, don't even talk about it, Beatles. Jane, an on-air rival that you've admired from a distance. Well, I've been lucky to meet most of the on-air rivals. Um, look, I, I, or got to meet over the years. Uh, initially, for instance, not so much a rival. I think she started five minutes before I did Liz Sullivan. I just thought she was great because uh, she just got out there and gave herself, gave, made us laugh, just really connected. I used to love listening to her and Pete Meehan. Oh, before that, Mary Hardy uh, on 3AW. Absolutely adored Mary Hardy. Did the same thing. Got in, made you laugh, reached out, touched you. I got to meet Mary Hardy uh, years uh, in the ensuing years before her loss. So I was lucky enough to do that. Uh, Joan Cannon, first uh, female breakfast, first breakfast announcer that was a woman, but that shouldn't be a curious thing. It was in the days. I never met her, but I admired her for trailblazing there. And um uh, yeah, I, so I've been very lucky that I've met most of the people that I admired um, who may have been rivals at the time. But at the end of the day, we're all batting for the same team. We all want to produce good things. The most treasured piece of memorabilia from those good old XYZ days? Ah, a couple of things. I have an XYZ wind cheater 
mm-hmm. which is still very precious to me and which I still wear, uh, a 3XY wind cheater. I also have an autographed photo from Robin Williams when Richard Stubbs and I went to Sydney to interview him when he was here to promote Good Morning Vietnam. He was blindingly talented, blindingly lovely, the funniest, loveliest, kindest person you could ever imagine and on the good morning vietnam poster uh, i don't know what he wrote on richard's i'm sure it was even better than mine but it was to jane i have microphone envy with love robin williams and uh richard and i spoke of that when um dear robin williams died and just said how blessed were we to have met him and spent an hour with him he was with us for an hour gosh it was funny the biggest news story that broke while you were on air I was reading news on 3AW. My first news reading job was in the evening and I was filling in when someone was unwell and it continued for a little bit. It was uh, Lindy Chamberlain had been found guilty of the murder of her baby, Zaria. And uh, that was that was a biggie, as I see, and continued to be a huge talking point for the ensuing decades, in fact. So I would have to say that. I wasn't on air uh, for September 11, uh, so I, I couldn't say that it was that. But, oh, well, certainly Ash Wednesday. I mean, we covered that. That's the only reason I didn't uh, mention it more fully. That was ongoing. That was real. That was lives hanging in the balance, being lost. That was life or death. That was extraordinary. And, again, the uh, bushfire tragedies that have befallen us in the years since then, and of course now, the COVID pandemic, I haven't been uh, as involved with that on air, but I've seen how our team at 3AW has worked tirelessly to bring the information that's been needed for our listeners. And uh, that has been, you know, the, the most extraordinary period for broadcasting as well, and the power of broadcasting. The best words of advice from a program manager. Gary Suprain, wonderful program manager, and I've been blessed to have worked with some wonderful program managers over the years. But early in the piece, Gary said, I am talking to you. You are not talking to the MCG's worth of people filing in and sitting down. It's one-on-one. Never forget, don't broadcast like you're talking to a crowd. And always remember that one person and understand who that one person may be, what that one person is listening to you for, give it to them. Thank you, Gaz. Got it. Now, I think you might have hinted at one already, but have you got two albums that were the soundtrack of your teenage years? Yes, well, one was indeed living in the 70s, yay. And uh, the other one about the same time, and it's interesting, uh, you know, oh, gee, I was a product of the 70s. But again, it was uh, Alice Cooper, Welcome to My Nightmare. I just loved the theatricality of Alice Cooper. He was a bit naughty. It was something that your parents didn't particularly uh, embrace. Uh, but I remember seeing the special uh, where he did Welcome to Your Nightmare with Vincent Price and staging and uh, dancing skeletons and things like that. And there he was with his top hat and his cane. It, it just married theatre with rock and um, the, the, the horror genre. It was just right up a teenager's alley, wasn't it? So I'd have to say welcome to my nightmare. 
Hey Jane, just before we go, just a quick rundown of the pets that we might currently find in your house at the moment. Well, it's my darling, our darling, our, our little man, 17-year-old Alvin, the tabby cat, who's having a bit of trouble with his kidneys and his thyroid and his blood pressure, but aren't we all when you get to a certain age? <laughs> and yes, he's, he's our, our dearest little one, uh, just the one. I did have three cats at one stage and... Uh, now there's Alvin, and he's a—he's a, just a great presence. He's more than a cat; he's an entity. Well, Miss Jane, I feel like we've only just touched the surface of what's been a very diverse, successful career, and one that we are delighted that you shared with us today. Thanks for being part of Pilots. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure to meet you over the over a microphone in a cuppa. The delightful Jane Holmes on Pilots of the Airwaves. Oh, yeah.